So I'm going to reiterate some, a couple of basic points to make sure that we're all in line here. So in Zen practice in particular, and in session, or Zen practice in general, and in session in particular, we really emphasize experiencing what is present and then functioning with clarity and compassion. What is present is also simple. What is present is also simple. So if we consider listening or we consider reading, we consider <clears throat> activity, we, we hear a word at a time, we hear a sentence at a time, and we compose paragraphs and pages and books. We are aware of simple building blocks. And then from those simple building blocks, we construct whatever world we construct. Seems pretty obvious, but... So when we are paying attention to the present, when we're anchoring in whatever we're calling the present, there is a simplicity about it. And ease. Now, it's obvious that our, <clears throat> our senses do not see, hear, or feel the future. We don't see tomorrow. We don't see 10 minutes from now. We don't hear the next sentence before it's time. So reality is a simple stream of experiences of now, 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 now. And then we, <clears throat> in one sense, collect all those, put them together as aggregates, and create what we think of as ourselves in the world. This is basic, basic Buddhism, the five aggregates, the, you know, all the senses, etc. That moment to moment to moment we have experience and then we sew together based on our interpretation of those experiences, our particular reality. Now, in a way, we all are always aware of what appeals real to us. I mean, we look around and that's real. So this part, which is the foundation of Dharma, is first we have to make sure that we're seeing beyond the name. We look down, we see what we call the floor. We look outside, we see what's called trees or kale. And one label can cover 10,000, 100,000 iterations. The word woman can include endless variations. And we know people who only see the label and not the person, not the people, not the individuals, who only see trees, but never see individual trees or recognize any trees. Sometimes we've had people who have been raised in an urban environment, and they come out here, and the whole place looks like it's filled with weeds. 
sometimes tall weeds, sometimes short weeds, sometimes flowering weeds, sometimes green weeds, but they all just look like undifferentiated green weeds. Or we always, often, almost every year, we have somebody who only sees green shoots and assumes they're all weeds, and they pull out all the carrots, they pull out all the kale, they pull out all the, uh, you know, all the new vegetables. Because they only are seeing a label of something and not really looking specifically at the thing. And the labels are often woven together into a story about the thing. A story about trees or garden or whatever. So when we are looking very specifically at a plant, at a finger, at an altar, and we're looking very specifically <clears throat> at that thing. We're looking beyond the label and beyond the story, beyond our interpretation. All those things, the label, the story, our interpretation, its functioning, etc., is a result of our cognitive functioning. It's a result of something that we, in a way, are adding to it. So we can think about the past, we can think about the future, we can think about functioning. We can add complexity to what is simple. Now, you know, being aware that we're adding complexity, that we're making things harder than they really need to be, is actually a, a good aspect of practice. When we're not aware of that, and we take our complexity, we take our interpretation, we take our weaving together, and we think that is real, then we're being used by the mind instead of using it. So the bottom line is we come to session, even a session on inquiry, and the anchor is the simplicity of this moment instead of the mind's endless considerations and constructions. The anchor is the simplicity of right now rather than the mind's interpretation and putting it into a larger imagined web. So when we come to Sashin and we're doing Zazen, and we come to practice and we're doing Zazen, simple, simple, simple. Turning toward the simpleness of the breath, the simpleness of the sensation of the body being breathed, the simpleness of the body sitting on the floor, the simpleness of the sensation of this particular sound, the simpleness of the space that's here right now. So when we come to Sashin and we're practicing in this way, our mind becomes simpler, becomes easier, becomes more rested, becomes more open. It's less complicated. It's less naughty. It's less burdened. It's less overwhelmed. It becomes simpler and simpler and simpler.
So we come to Sashin, and when we're concentrating on the, the foundational things that we keep talking about, we turn our attention away from fear and anxiety and who am I going to be in the next 10 years? What I want for the future. So one of the promises and the experience of Sashen, if, if, <clears throat> if we're being as being skillful, is greater ease, greater presence. The burden of who am I going to be next year begins to fall away. We don't know anyhow. Now, so if we think about what do we want next year, or if everything turns out well, or if all my machinations that I'm engaged in right now in order to make the very best thing happen, in order to become, to get what I think I need, if that all turns out to be so, what do we hope there, that we're going to um, encounter, experience? We're going to hope that we feel happy and satisfied and engaged and enjoying life and feeling loved. <clears throat> We have a fantasy of we'll have a great partner, we'll have a great job, we'll have great activity, we'll have great travel, a great living situation, great climate, great opportunities, so that we'll feel happy and satisfied and engaged and enjoy life and be loved. And so we are constantly trying to choose the things that are going to get us what we think we want so that we will be able to feel what we think we want to feel. But as you all know, the future rarely turns out the way we expect. And even if it does, we rarely feel the way we expected to feel <clears throat> in that situation. We have a fantasy of going someplace, and we think once we get to Fiji or Disneyland or Boston will feel a certain way, will have certain experiences. And we get to those places and suddenly we find that the experiences we expected to have in these places don't happen. But if we are anchoring right now, right here, in this breath, in this moment, and we find a presence in the simplicity of this moment, we can find a happiness, a satisfaction, be engaged, enjoy life, and be loved right here, right now. And all of our machinations about what may happen, what we hope to happen, where we're, we think we're going to end up, become not so relevant because there's a place of satisfaction right here. In the simplicity of the moment. And again, I say this all the time, but just to make sure, satisfaction is not being you're a frozen zombie. I'm satisfied with the way the world is, and therefore nothing's going to change. It's all going to stay like a popsicle, you know. 
the way things are is they're constantly changing, constantly, constantly, constantly. So satisfaction means I am satisfied with the flow of life. And not a thing. So we come to Sishin, we sit down, and the goal is a lighter, happier presence. Straightforward. But a sign that we've gotten tangled in thought, that we've gotten tangled in considerations, that we've gotten tangled in our own manipulations about trying to turn things the direction we think we want them to turn, is that we feel more burden, we feel more weight, we feel more confusion, we feel more doubt, we feel more unhappy. We can just assess this. Am I feeling lighter and clearer and more at ease? <clears throat> or am I feeling, you know, oh, really hard, really hard, really hard? I'm saying this over and over, even though everybody is aware of it, I hope. But when we're doing this kind of questioning and we begin pondering the, the, with curiosity the nature of things, with many times, rather than it leading to a simplicity and clarity, we get caught in thought and we end up with more doubt and more confusion and our mind is, becomes more entangled. We think we're, we're questioning, but we're just entangling. The idea of this kind of questioning is it cuts through the Gordian knot of confusion. It doesn't make it more convoluted. If we're making it more convoluted and we're ending up feeling overwhelmed and despairing and dark, and that's skeptical doubt. That's not the simplicity where we find freedom. So, the first point, which again, I apologize for belaboring. We come to Seshen to find an ease and lightness because the thing that burdens us the most is our own mind. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. I don't have, I don't get, I, I want, I want. It's not right, this is not right. And if we become simple and we let that mind go, we'll talk about that, how to do that in just a moment. We feel more ease. Okay, now this is Sashen is about inquiry, inquiring awareness. And this is the kind of inquiring awareness that we hope leads to simplicity and clarity. And simplicity and clarity. Less burden. And there are two basic kinds. We've talked about this. I think Shane talked about it. There are many ways of looking at that. But I'm going to talk about two different 
aspects. And both are important. The first, and perhaps the most important one, is once we become somewhat stable and clear and present and at ease, we can then look at the friction points in our life. We can look at the places we think something is not right, something is off. And we can then inquire into those friction points. What are we inquiring into those friction points for? So that we can find clarity and ease. Be able to function with a lighter heart. So if we have a complaint, and I think Shanae gave many people a complaint list, and we all have, we all can make a complaint list at a drop of the drop of a pencil. We all have all those things that we complain about. Great, good to know. Some people have a whole book of complaints. Some people have just a few pages. Some complaints are trivial. Some complaints are profound. All kinds of complaints. But it's important to take one. One is stickiest. Not try to at least the way we're doing it right now, cut through the whole mess. And the first thing we look at with a particular complaint is we say, is this a legitimate complaint? Am I complaining that the sky is too cloudy? That's not a legitimate complaint. Because the sky is the way it is, and that's just our grumbling. And we can look then directly at our grumbling. Why in the world am I grumbling? Because the sky is the way it is. I have some idea how the sky should be according to me. Then we can look at that and begin to poke a hole in that. And the result is we have less concern, less weight. We realize our grumbling is not so important. The sky is just the way it is and our grumbling is extra and we can begin to let it go. And then what is the result? Clarity and ease. It may be all of our result, all of our complaints are like this. You know, we complain about the government because according to me and my friend's expectations, the government should do da 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 According to me and my friend's opinion, this should happen, that should happen. Things should go this way, things should go that way. According to me and my friend's opinion. And we mistake agreement with reality. So, is it a legitimate complaint? Is it true? We have to look at our complaints. You can take your list, look at your complaints. We have to ask ourselves, do I really know anybody else's mind? Do I know what any of you are thinking, except that we all seem to cycle through the same set of thoughts as, as human beings? But we don't know the taste in anybody's mouth. We don't know how people's backs feel. We don't know how their knees feel. 
We don't know. You know, we assume that if my legs are really comfortable and I love to sit in full lotus, that all of you are really comfortable and love to sit in full lotus. So we don't know. We don't know the collection of, we don't know one person's mind, much less the collection of the 100,000 people in the government's mind. We don't know. We can't know. So we let it go. Or we have an idea that everybody should have health care. Personally, I think it's a great idea. And I think that everybody should have health care and then everybody and their children should all live long and happy and healthy lives and they should be able to have fantastic doctors who every time there was an illness or an accident were able to really make them new again. That's my opinion. But just imagine the consequences of something like that. The world's population would skyrocket, shoot up, and cause a thousand more problems. That it would take all kinds of resources. That it's beyond our expertise or perhaps even our possibility. That we have a particular complaint that we and our friends have gotten together and agree upon, but we have very limited understanding of the consequences. We have very limited understanding of the enormous range <clears throat> of mechanisms and involvement from mining in Madagascar to you know, research into atomic fission and Los Alamos, all of which go into this thing we call medicine. It's enormously complicated. But my understanding is so limited. It's so limited about how does a government function? How does, we were in China, you know, one and a half billion people. I mean, even conceiving of that number of people, much less trying to keep a, an order among that many people, is inconceivable in my mind. So our understanding is limited. It's just worth acknowledging. <clears throat> because we don't know, and our understanding is limited, and our capacity for understanding is limited, a lot of things we just let go. It's not important. Third, is it my business? Is it my business how the Safeway and Klatskanai runs, what they have in their store and what they don't have in their store? You either go in and you buy it, you don't buy it. You use them, you don't use them. But it's not our business. The weather is not our business. What everybody is doing, we've all come together and we've agreed to work and to live and function in a certain kind of way in order to do session. But everybody's got their own practice. They've got their own minds. It's not my business. It's yours. 
So there are things that really are our business, and there's a whole lot that's not. So just imagine, if we let go of worrying about all the things that we don't know, we let go about worrying of all the consequences that we couldn't understand, we let go of worrying about all the things that really aren't our job to worry about, how much lighter we'd be. And then we just face the obvious eight worldly winds that things are you know, loss and gain and pleasure and pain and you know, easy and hard and people like us and they don't like us. And we just say, oh, that's just the way it is. You know, people don't like me today. They'll like me tomorrow. It's easy today. It's hard tomorrow. It's hard today. It's easy tomorrow. And we just say, yeah, I don't have to worry about it. Just the way it is. Just move. Just flow. So we've let go of what we don't know. We've let go of... <clears throat> How things work, we've let go of people's minds, we've let go of what's not our responsibility, we've accepted the nature of the eight worldly winds. Wow. How much easier life would be. And then if there's something we do need to do, a choice we do need to make, a place we do need to help, we have the clarity the presence, and the energy to engage. Chosen has decided she's helping, uh, she's volunteering to do vaccinations as part of <clears throat> her contribution to the current medical situation. A little bitty thing, but she says, oh, I can do this. So by identifying our complaints and then looking at the complaints clearly and acknowledging the truth about them, we can stop complaining about reality. We can stop complaining about the things that are our business. We can stop complaining. We can stop complaining. And we can drop between 50 and 90% of our problems just like that. And we can have more energy to do what we need to do. So we come to Sashin, ideally, with that intention. I want to drop all the stuff that I can't possibly know. I will not possibly know how I'm going to feel next week. I will not possibly be able to know where I'm going to be next year. I cannot possibly know, you know, what I'll be wearing on the beach in Malibu. when it's cloudy out in the winter. So we let it go, let it go, let it go. So the complaints are just signs of investigating. The more we complain, the more friction there is. The more friction there is, the more we can investigate. The more we can investigate and let go of what we don't need to hold on to. Simple, freer, easier. And that is, basically, if we just do that, our lives become much more functional. That's the aim of session. Just identifying our complaints, 
looking into them deeply, seeing the reality, dropping what's not important, what is unsolvable. Now, how do we drop something? Sinead gave the example yesterday of somebody grabbing the arm and saying, how, how do you let go of this? How do you drop something? In a way, it's not up to us. We all have muscles, probably, that we have been trying to relax for our whole lives. And yet, it's not the time for it. We probably all have different kinds of things that we have identified as a, an issue, and we would be happy to drop it, but we've been unable to do so. It's not the time for it. So one of the elements of dropping is the intention and then the steadfast going forward, not engaging, relaxing, being present, and in its own time, things fall away. They won't disappear before it's their time to do that. We're not in control. So there's the steady application of the intention. Another way that we let go, and actually this is a more, perhaps more profound way, is we keep talking about concentration, concentration, concentration. And let's say that the, the, the problem is we're grabbing a hold of this thing called a watch. You know, we're grabbing a hold of this particular problem and it's got a knot on us and we can't let go, we can't let go. We're grabbing a hold of the self, we're grabbing a hold of all of our delusion, we're grabbing a hold of all those things that are such a, a, a burden to us. And we're holding on. We say, I gotta let go, I gotta let go. I'm not letting go. It's not letting go enough. I gotta let go some more. I've got to work harder to let go. And so the practice way of doing it is we say, okay, I'm going to concentrate. I'm gonna put my attention not on that. I'm gonna put my attention on the breath. I'm gonna put my attention on my body touching the earth. I'm going to put my attention on the space in the earth. I'm going to put my whole attention on that. And then it just drops. We've forgotten it. We let it go without even intending to. We let it go because we are concentrating on something else instead of half of our mind gnarled up in it. So the function of concentration, one of the functions of concentration, is it turns us away from those habitual knots that we get into with our mind or whatever. It just turns us away to what is simple, what is present. It takes energy to do that. It doesn't just happen by itself. It takes energy, but it's a constant turning away until we become really curious and really interested. And we become curious enough and interested enough in what is, we let go. It just drops. It's not important. Choop, gone. We've forgotten it. Now, 
Everybody has had that experience in session, in retreats. You know, before you come in, there's something on your heart, there's something that's really worrying, and you and you come in here and you're in this particular environment, and we keep talking about concentration, and we keep talking about being present, and you, we focus on our breath, and we become stable, and we hear the, the birds singing outside, and we or insects, and we begin just forgetting the stuff that's not present. And we feel an ease in our heart until we end of the retreat and we grab a hold of it again, feel miserable. So the first kind of inquiry is this inquiry that leads to a simplicity and stabilization of the mind, that leads to a lightness, that leads to a, 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 an ease, that leads to better functioning. And if we just did that, hallelujah. On the other hand, even if we are <clears throat> light in ourselves and we're, we're not so burdened, we look out on the world and we see lots of pain and lots of suffering and lots of heartache. And the response to that is compassion, empathy, sympathetic joy, loving kindness. And then from a place of stability, a place of clarity, we can then concentrate, we can focus on these fundamental existential questions. We can look at the root of our minds. Where did I come from before my parents were born? What, what is it that arises right now? What is it that's alive at all the time? What's behind everything? What's unborn? What's undying? Now, frankly, many people, those are ridiculous questions. And there is no reason that somebody should be interested in them. I mean, what is it that's behind everything? Well, there's nothing behind everything, okay? Taking care of that. For some people, those kind of questions are really important. They're compelling. What is the root of suffering? What is the root of me? Where did this consciousness come from? But for other people, it is complete waste of time. There's no, there's no rightness about it. We all practice the best way we can practice trying to see through whatever the knot of suffering is so that we can find some simplicity and clarity and ease so that we can function with more grace. We can function with more subtlety. We can function with more savoir-faire to do what we need to do in our life. But for other people, these kind of questions are really compelling. Sometimes we don't get a choice. The tradition in the Zen school is either we are doing shikantaza as a rough slice, we're doing shikantaza, which is 
I'm going to let go of all the problems. I'm going to stop the complaining. I'm going to rest in the isness of right now. I'm going to find simplicity and ease and uh, breathe easy right now so that I can function better in my life. Or we have this other approach which says, I have to look into the root of things. It's really important. I can't rest. That kind of person, the tradition is to use koans. So we'll talk a little bit about one of the classic koans. In the first, in the first case of the Mumonkan, the Gateless Gate collection by Master Mumon of the seven eight hundreds, I forgot. Is Joshu's Mu. A monk in all seriousness came to the great master Joshu Chao Chu and said, Is it true that even such a lowly thing as a rabbit has a Buddha nature? And Joshu replies, Mu. No. Now the, the setup is, of course, that he's asking about this scurrilous, disease-filled, broken, you know, repellent creature. Is it true that even such a, a horrible creature has, as we often say in Buddhism, whole and complete lacking nothing. And Joshi says, no, Mu. So the, the, the question in the, in the question is whole and complete lacking nothing. Is there the Tathagatakarabha, the Buddha body in everything? as all the teachings say. And the great Master Joshi says, no, that's not true. So that's the paradox right now. What does he mean by that no, that's not true? What does that no mean? That's the, the kind of intellectual substrate. And the way we practice with that is, first off, we use the word mu, as a, almost like a mantra, as a, something to concentrate on, as something to do the, the very things that we've been talking about. You, you focus the mind on mu. Until you align the body-mind there's this vibration. The body is mooing. The mind is mooing. The sound is mooing. The, the, everything is mooing. There's, there's a concentration and alignment. And that's great. That's the foundation for all practice, frankly. If we're doing shikantasa, we have to have this alignment. Body and mind, present, humming in harmony, not separate from the world, humming in harmony with the world. But Mu takes it another step, the koans, Mu, and all the koans. Here's what Mumon says, very classic, not a very classic, but the classic introduction to koans, this kind of practice. In his comments, he says, For the practice of Zen, you must pass the barriers set up by the ancient masters, 
So this is the gateless gate, the gate that has no gate on it, has no doors. And here is a barrier, a barrier which has to be penetrated even though it is no barrier. We have to cut through conundrum, cut through paradox. But it's a first fundamental con to to open the gate either a little bit or a lot into a different view of the world. He continues, to attain the marvelous enlightenment. Now that's the, the, the bait that's always held out for all of us. We read these stories about people who have these great insights and great wisdom and suddenly light and clarity and they, their, their life is transformed and suddenly everything is obvious and clear and they, they're able to move forward with whatever the particular fantasy that we all have. And of course, in the human realm, there's, everything is possible. But to break out of our cocoon of habitual dark thinking is another way of saying this particular piece. And we can either put a crack in it or we can rip it off. And that happens in its own time. That's not a matter of willpower. But the concentration is something that we can do. And he says, to attain the marvelous enlightenment, you must completely extinguish all thoughts of the ordinary mind. Completely extinguish all thoughts of the ordinary mind. I've got to extinguish my thoughts. I've got to extinguish my thoughts. I've got to be quiet. I've got to, that's not, that's the ordinary mind. That's not extinguishing thought. So how do we do that in a practical way? How do we get out of the, the habit that we have cultivated for innumerable lifetimes of not now, not now, it's got to be someplace else, someplace else. Well, the first place is we concentrate. We concentrate, we align the body-mind, we concentrate. We concentrate on what is instead of the habitual mind of what is next. All thoughts of what is next and what is coming and what will I get, what do I don't like, are extinguished in total, complete engagement with the present moment. And that's not easy. Sometimes, you know, if you, and you can't do this with will, you have to do it with over time and things will catch you to a different moment. But if you actually get to that place where you're focusing so hard, you can just watch the habitual mind is so tense, just grabbing for something else, and it takes so much energy just to stay purely present. It takes concentration. One continues, if you have not passed the barrier and have not extinguished all thoughts, you're a phantom haunting the weeds and the trees. 
Now again, the thought, I must extinguish all thoughts, is the thought. So with our intellectual mind thinking, I've got to extinguish all thoughts, I've got to extinguish all thoughts, it's not going to work. All that happens, it's very, it's very simple. We concentrate. Now, do you have to concentrate on this particular koan? No. There are flow states where people can concentrate on other things. But the total engagement has got to have both concentration and curiosity. Concentration and curiosity. So that we're not just grabbing a little bit here and a little bit there and holding on and trying not to get blown away and blowing ourselves away. It takes curiosity and concentration. In this case, the focal point in this particular koan, the way that it works, is the koan mu. And Joshu says, or excuse me, Muman says, now tell me, what is the barrier of the ancestors? Merely this mu, the one barrier of our sect. So part of the entrance gate that into this other realm is the realm of oneness, non-separation. So anything that really brings us into the place of no other, of non-separation, the isness of right now, that absorbs us completely, becomes that same one barrier whether you call it moo or turtle. One syllable is easier to zero in on and focus. In China, they call it, sometimes call it the woo word. It's always one barrier. There's only one barrier. And the one barrier is our dualistic mind. And so it has come to be called the gateless barrier of the Zen sect. Those who have passed the barrier are able not only to see Joshu face to face, but also walk hand in hand with the whole descending line of ancestors and be eyebrow to eyebrow with them. You will see with the same eye that they see with. And hear with the same ear they hear with. See with the same eyes <clears throat> as all of the great ancestors. It means they're right here. They've got to be right here. To hear with the same ears, right here. 2,500 years of this particular thread of ancestors have got to be right here. The Buddha on the night of his awakening. So all of his past lives, right there, right there, right there, because we're not separate. <clears throat> we're not separate. It's not just me looking out of these eyes, not just me hearing with these ears. There's a whole world. These are the eyes of the world the ears of the world. Oneless, timeless.
unfathomable source. Wouldn't it be a wonderful joy? Isn't there anyone who wants to pass this barrier? Uman says. If so, then concentrate your whole self into this mu, making your whole body with its 360 bones and joints and 84,000 pores into a solid lump of doubt. He's not literally meaning that there are exactly 360 bones or just, just the, the idea of your whole being engaged in concentration and curiosity. Now, we can't be curious about something we're not curious about, right? And we sort of say, okay, you should be curious about this, and we say, eh. But what, my experience, what happens is when we are directing our attention towards flies, flies become more interesting. And when we're actually zeroing in on flies' eyeballs, they're pretty amazing. And when we're actually looking more and more closely at something, it opens up and reveals itself. So this move, we start off with concentration. We start off with feeling the whole body, the whole breath, the whole mind, all just resonating. And as we get closer to it, we begin to say, where is it coming from? What's aware of that? And then right while we're doing that exact same practice, we begin to inquire more and more, become, not inquire, but more and more intimately engaged. We get up really close to it. Day and night without ceasing, keep digging into it. Don't take it as nothingness. There's nothing there. Or as being or non-being. It's not as though we're looking for some void that's not there. How can a void look for itself? It must be like a red hot iron ball which you've gulped down and you try to vomit but cannot. Sometimes these questions of our own nature, of the nature of reality, become compelling. They can become compelling, and we are being questioned, not I am questioning. And it becomes part of our being, and it's an unresolved coal. This is not easy. And yet, I think it's important. You must extinguish all delusive thoughts and beliefs which you have cherished up to the present. All those opinions, all those judgments, all let go of into the simplicity of this moment. After a certain period of such efforts, 
Mu will come to fruition. Inside and outside will become one naturally because they already are. It is important when we're working on a koan, we're working on something really deep, we're working on something that, that goes right to the root, that it's not a matter of willpower. I will get the answer and it will come when I want it to come and the way I think it should come. But rather, it's a matter of us staying with it and staying with it and being curious and being curious and staying with it and staying with it. And periodically, at some point, something will open up. Something will say, oh, big O or a small O. And it's, not a, it's a function of our intensity and our curiosity, but not a function of time. It's unpredictable. Things come in their own time. On a very different level, we often have people who <clears throat> are searching for relationship. And we often say, just wait, just wait. And when the time is right, when they have changed enough, somebody very appropriate comes along. But you can't rush it. You can't make it happen sooner than it it's time for it to happen. We will come to fruition, and inside and outside will become one naturally. You'll be like a dumb person. You'll be like a mute person who's had a dream. You'll know for yourself. You can't share it. One of the interesting things that happens when people have deep experience. They want to share it so much. They want other people to, to understand, to taste, to taste it, to, to find liberation. And they can be they can be total irritating pests. Oh, it's like this. Oh, it's like this. Oh, don't you see? Oh, it's like this. It doesn't work. Each, each of us has to walk the path by ourselves has to have realization by herself. Like trying to explain the color yellow to somebody who doesn't know what yellow is. All of a sudden, Mu will break open. It will astonish the heavens and shake the earth. It will be just as if you snatched the great sword of General Khan. If you meet the Buddha, you will kill him. If you meet an ancestor, you will kill them. That is, the idea of them. Where did they come from in the first place? I'm not talking about some person out there that you do something to. It's about this things that we have created in our own mind. Though you may stand on the brink of life and death, you will enjoy the great freedom. In the six realms and the four modes of birth, you will live in the samadhi of innocent play. Now how should you concentrate on Mu? Exhaust every ounce of energy you have in doing it. And do not give up on the way. In time, You'll be enlightened the way a candle in front of the altar is lighted by one touch of fire. There are many aspects of this koan that can only be delved into with the intense concentration on Mu. And there are different ways of passing Mu different experiences, even though it's 
not an experience. So I personally worked on Mu with five different teachers. And the, the, the Mu with Kapalo Roshi was not the same Mu with Harada Roshi. And yet they were not different. So there is no should or ought about this process. The thing is, how do we find liberation? And just to be liberated from our complaining mind, our whining, self-centered mind, is enormous liberation. And we all should strive for that level of liberation. And should we have the bad karma? Should we have the, the terrible burden of these existential gnawings? Then other kinds of things are also important. Bottom line again, as we concentrate, as we concentrate right here, right now, as we let go of what is extraneous, as you let go of what we don't have control over anyhow, as you let go of the things that we can't understand that are beyond our kin, as we let go of those, there is a lightness, an ease, a presence that begins to happen. So please, may everyone find that lightness and ease and presence that is possible in Sashin. And don't get tangled up in the mind of should and ought. The mind of, I'll figure this out with my head. I'll know what tomorrow is going to bring. I'll finally get it straight so I'll know exactly what I'm supposed to do next year, when there may not even be a next year. Satisfaction, happiness, confidence, clarity, and the very best fuel for good decision-making and life skills is always, always, always found right here. Please know that for yourself.